Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. In his novella The Machine Stops, the writer E.M. Forster describes a future in which the elite do nothing but creative or intellectual work. The rest of the people simply receive a small income to live on. What was pure science fiction in 1909 when the story was published now seems less outrageous. Robots which can take care of so many tasks are now a reality. The OECD estimates that automation threatens 14% of jobs in OECD countries. It will radically alter 32% of jobs. I'm talking about the future of work with Matthew Taylor, who's the chief executive of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce in the UK. He's also the author of the Taylor Review, a report with recommendations on the future of work to the UK government. Thank you very much for talking to us, Matthew. Thank you for asking me. Robots seem to be hitting medium-skilled jobs first and hard. We're seeing administrative jobs disappearing, skilled trades, machine operation. What are you seeing on the ground? So I think we have to distinguish between uh, the short term and long term. So there are clearly uh, areas where technology has already made an impact and will continue to make a greater impact. Manufacturing is the most obvious uh, Mm -hmm. example where I think the manufacturing sector in Britain is bigger than it used to be in the past, but it employs a fraction of the number of of workers. Um, And uh, yeah, there's certain other kind of routine task, administrative tasks, lower level managerial tasks that we're also starting to see impacted. But there's a tendency to kind of focus on what's being lost yes, uh, and not to focus on what is being uh, created. So one example would be the retail sector, where a lot of jobs have been or are being lost in shops because mm-hmm. of the automation of checkouts. And um, that will probably continue. But actually, there are more jobs in retail now. They're in warehouses and they are driving deliveries around because the business model of retail has changed and now more people expect to have things delivered to their door within 24 hours of ordering them. Now, that might just sound like a, a particular point about retail, but there's a broader point there and that's around business models. So if, if you introduce automation into a, a sector, then those who have a lead in terms of the automation will go ahead, they'll make profits. But sooner or later, that automation will become cheaper and more people will do it. And then the cost will fall. And then it becomes much more difficult to make profit out of it. And in those circumstances, entrepreneurs then have to find different business models. They have to find different ways of generating value. And those different ways of generating value will often involve the creation of new types of jobs. So I think in the short term, it's easier to know where jobs will go than where they'll be created. But the history of technological change in labor markets shows us that there will probably be as many jobs created, mm. but jobs that is harder for us to predict. You know, the OECD says that 32% of jobs, it estimates, will be radically altered by automation. What have you seen? What are some jobs that we know quite well that now are done differently because we have, diff- you know, we have the technology to do it differently? So I think we can see uh, sectors that have been affected. I've just talked about uh, a retail. If you take an area like a state agency or real estate, as it's often called in other parts, you can see more and more of that moving online and therefore uh, the relative costs of people who are state agents who are people and sit in offices they, they will rise and so you're likely to see that increasingly moving to well more and more of that moving online i think we'll see the same with legal services and some professional services 
um, they will change. The jobs won't go, the activity won't go, but the human component will diminish and the automated component will increase. So let's uh, turn to atypical workers, uh, people who aren't permanent employees at a company or in the public sector. So these are people who work through temp agencies, right, or who are, are platform workers? Yeah, so I think this is a really important debate. And uh, my mind isn't fixed on it. But I think at the moment, my view would be that uh, those ways of working suit many people. And they have some advantages for people who are carers or people who are semi-retired. It provides flexibility. As long as those platforms provide what I called in my report, two-way flexibility. So there is flexibility both for the worker as well as for the hirer, mm. then I, I think that's fine. But we need systems of tax and welfare provision which are suited to these new ways of working. And at the moment, that isn't the case. And we need regulatory frameworks that ensure that these ways of working are fair and based upon reciprocity rather than simply based upon exploitation or seeking to evade responsibilities. I think a big part of the problem is that we can't figure out legally what their status is, whether they're employees or whether they are self-employed. What you'll find is all around the world, this question of employment status ends up in the courts because it's complex because all work is different, right? Exactly. But you need to do the best you can. And what I've advocated in Britain, what the government will take forward if it ever gets the head supposed to do it, is first of all, to align the tax system and the employment rights system. They weren't aligned before. But secondly, to emphasise most of all, control and supervision. So to put it simply, if I want to give you orders, not just ask you to do a particular job, but to give you orders, to have ongoing control over you, then I need to respect your employment rights and I need to pay taxes on your employment. And I think if you use that, that's probably the best you can get to. Because what that means is it says to entrepreneurs, look, if you just want to hire people for one-off jobs, well, then you can do that. But if you want any further, if you want to make them wear a uniform, you want to work in a particular way, well, then you're going to have to pay the price that comes with doing that. And I think, so, you know, let's look at two platforms. You take a, a platform like Airtasker, and that's a platform you can go on and you can get someone to come in and repair your windows or paint your door or whatever it might be. They're one-off jobs. I don't think those people have employment rights. I think they are self-employed effectively. Take another platform, Uber or Deliveroo, where those people have to work in particular ways mm -hmm. and they follow instructions and the company can change the way they work. I think that's employment. What about minimum wage and applying that to these atypical jobs? Because that's very, very tricky to figure out how when they're actually working for the platform, right. for example. Well, the minimum wage issue goes with the employment status issue. So if somebody is a worker or an employee, then they get the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And it is true that people who practice kind of bogus self-employment, try to pretend people are self-employed when actually their employees are partly trying to evade the minimum wage. So I think you deal with the minimum wage issue if you deal with the employment status issue. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, if somebody is self-employed, there is a, a, a an argument that self-employed people should get the minimum wage. But I don't. I think that's inappropriate because I think that Many self-employed people, and the RSA has done research on this, they're not self-employed primarily to raise money. It's um, a, a pastime. It's a hobby. It's something they do in the margins of their life. And, you know, if if somebody chooses to do work that's not terribly productive because they enjoy doing it, p painting oil paintings and selling them or taking walk dogs for a walk, whatever it might be, then I don't think the state should be there to say you cannot do that work unless you earn a, unless you earn a certain level. That's appropriate. For, for employees, workers, it's not appropriate, I think, for people who are genuinely self-employed. Let's uh, move on to the question of social protection for the atypical work workers, which we've talked about, but also about upskilling for them, whether for people who have atypical jobs or people who have, say, regular jobs. The whole issue of training to adapt to increasing digitalization and all these new technologies is becoming 
a big question. Do you have a sense of what the price tag is for training for the UK? So I think you need a, a strategy with a number of different elements. So you need to have systems for training and support which are more personalized. And in France, we've seen the introduction of individual learning accounts in other parts of the world as well. So I think we more mean a more individualized approach to learning so people can learn in the way they want to at the time that they want to. Is whenever. that your personal learning budget? And personal learning mm-hmm. budget is an idea we promote. But all around the world, there are different kind of models. So we need mm-hmm. a more individualized learning offer. Uh, then I think, yes, absolutely, we need to be working with those companies that employ casual workers, gig workers, to encourage them to think about how they can provide job progression within those organizations for people who want it. And then thirdly, we need to recognize that some of the skills that people acquire in those jobs are transferable skills. So to take a very simple thing, it should be much easier for you to take your customer approval rating from one platform to another. Right. Because if you can demonstrate that you're reliable, that customers like you, that's not just relevant to you as a taxi driver. That could be relevant to you as a shop worker or relevant to you as a care worker. So uh, there are elements even in these jobs which might appear to be quite casual, which are actually transferable, and we should make it easier for people to do that. Also on the question about upscaling, it's how to structure training. One of the findings in the employment outlet that just came out from the OECD was that the people to, who tend to be older, who need the most training, are also the ones who are not doing it, whether they don't have time or they don't have the inclination. What's your suggestions about that? So there's a short-term challenge about how it is we provide learning in the ways that uh, people want to do it. But I think I would focus more, I think, on the longer-term challenge, and that is really to genuinely embed an idea of learning throughout life. And I I think uh, one element of that is to try to move towards nationally and internationally recognized frameworks of employability skills uh, so that we have this sense that every worker uh, feels that as they develop in life, any skill, any attribute, any achievement is something which is relevant and that they can record. It's it's kind of what middle class people do on LinkedIn, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the skill you showed in that job, it might not be specific training, but you did some fantastic customer service. Well, that can be recorded and that's part of your kind of portfolio. Uh, the work you did as a volunteer, uh, other things that you've done in your life. So we've got to get to this idea that actually what people can do in a much more flexible way using micro-accreditation is record achievement and growth and development throughout their lives. Because at the moment, what we have is a model that says, well, you do all your learning at the beginning, you get a trade, and then that trade goes because of automation or whatever. And then at the age of 50, you've suddenly got to return to learning 25 years after you did it and when you didn't really enjoy it in the first place. And that's not surprising. That's a very difficult thing to sell. Yeah. So what we have to move to is this idea that you learn from cradle to grave. Yeah. So it's a culture, a cultural change, in fact. Yeah. Change it's interesting, mind. isn't it, that if I was to say to you, uh, how do you keep fit? You'd probably say, well, I go swimming or I go running or I do something. It'd be a reasonable question. You might ask me the same thing. Mm-hmm. We still aren't yet in a culture where I would say to you, what are you learning? Yeah. And that would be a natural question for you. Right. you know? And we need to be in a culture where, where, where anybody would say to anybody else, oh, by the way, what are you learning at the moment? Are we thinking how much this is going to cost and who is going to pay for it? Should governments only pay for it? Should employers pay part so, of it? Should individuals contribute? I, I think the model that we need is threefold. First of all, there is a, a role for the state in investing in those areas of skill which there is a, 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 there's a skill shortage. So there's a national economic interest in trying to develop people into kind of, you know, the, the focus has been on STEM. I don't know that it'll be on STEM in 10 or 20 years. I think it'd actually be different sets of skills we need. Mm. So there's there's a kind of 
policy which is around supplying the labor force of the future. Secondly, there needs to be investment in people at the bottom end of the labor market, those who've left school with lower educational attainment, mm-hmm. because for them, it's a bigger jump and they need better support and better incentives. And also, it's more difficult for them to take time off from work, all that kind of stuff. As for the rest, I don't think it needs to cost very much at all, to be honest. You know, I think that that the internet can provide more and more sophisticated ways for people to learn individually and collectively and share learning. So I think that there are areas where we need state investment, but actually we can have a much more learning society without it necessarily costing the earth. I just have one last question, which is about worker tech, because you put quite a lot of store into worker tech, and I'd like you to explain what it is and what are the best initiatives that you've found. So worker tech is a, a range of initiatives undertaken by entrepreneurs, often through social businesses, which seek to enhance workers' rights, their capacity for progression, protection, uh, sometimes just their general well-being. Uh, so at the RSA, a few months ago, we had the first uh, Global Future Work Awards, and we identified some of the most interesting startups or existing companies that are trying to support workers, and many of those are through tech platforms. So the kind of examples might be something like Portify, which is a platform that it enables tech workers to be have develop more flexible packages of support. There's another platform which is around smoothing the earnings of gig workers so that their earnings aren't so erratic. Uh, there was another one which was around making sure that homeless people have an address because if you don't have an address it's very difficult to get a job or to get benefits Uh, so there's a whole variety of really interesting platforms and what we've created an accelerator working with those and working with places as well so i'm very excited by what's going on there's a lot of really brilliant social innovation social enterprise taking place in this area of giving workers better support that doesn't mean by the way that i don't think we need laws it doesn't mean i don't think we need trade unions but i think that these people are, are providing interesting and important services to support a new type of worker Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you. And thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about what we've been talking about, look up the Taylor Review, as well as the OECD's 2019 Employment Outlook. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.